Okay, welcome everyone. Today is, uh, in Thai we'd call it Visaka Puja, which means the day, or Visaka Punami, which uh, means the full moon of the month of Visaka. Puja means it's a um, holiday or a time to pay respect, to pay homage, to pay puja to the, to the Buddha. Of course, in Sri Lanka we know it as Vesak, which uh, I assume <coughs> must come from the Sanskrit for Visaka. I'm not sure actually, but it might also come from a strengthening of the word Visaka. I'm not sure what the Sanskrit is. So today we're continuing our study of the Dhammapada. This is um, what the intention was, but it's also a special occasion. So thank you everyone for coming out. We have a full house today. And we're recording, we're live on the internet as well. Uh, which is, I think, somewhat... Uh, somewhat proper because of the... This is the International Day of Peace as well. It's because it's the Buddha's birthday and because Buddhism has always been thought of as a religion <coughs> of peace. Yeah, it's been given the name of the International Day of Peace, I think, by the United Nations. Kind of unofficially or officially, I'm not sure. And so it's important that we, do, we, we think internationally. Right? So we're acting here locally. We're not trying to change the world, but we're opening up to the world. So our little activities here in this small corner of the frozen tundra of Canada, uh, not so frozen now, actually we have an impact on the world, that we are a part of a global village, we're part of a we're part of the universe, putting ourselves in the universe, as opposed to focusing on this little corner of the little corner of Manitoba, in a small corner of Canada, in the corner of the globe, in the small corner of the galaxy, in the some small corner of the universe. Instead of just focusing on this plot and our lives, we're seeing the bigger picture. We're, we're putting ourselves in this perspective, which is somewhat important in Buddhism, that we shouldn't see life, we shouldn't see reality just in terms of this, what we find ourselves, what we woke up to coming out of our, our mother's womb. That would be a shame if that's all that we saw, that our life, our our journey was just this one short stint on some remote corner of the in some remote corner of the universe and that's kind of interesting because a corner may not it's not really a corner of the universe so on the other hand this is the center of the universe our reality <coughs> is uh, at the center of things and so this is this whole idea of think locally right or no think globally act locally I would even go so far to think universally, but act locally. So that's what we're doing. We're coming together here. We're not going out and trying to change the world. We are doing our thing here and being a part of the global or the universe, part of the universe. So I, th I think that that's important to think of, to think of how this is not just something, um, something specific to us. This is something that makes us a part of the universe. And rightly so, on this day of Vesak, this day of Visaka Puja, where we pay respect to the uh, Loka Vidu, the one, the knower of the three worlds, the knower of the universe, the Buddha who is said to, to, to have come to understand the whole of the universe, come to realize yeah, all there is to know about the nature of the universe, which we get a glimpse of in our meditation, or we get an appreciation of through our practice of his teachings. 
we're able to see how we're able to see this we're able to understand the universe in the same way that the Buddha did we're able to see that no matter how far you go, no matter where you go in the universe, no matter what you do, no matter who you are, reality boils down to some very simple principles, simple uh, entities, very simple concepts of experience and uh, of the present moment of, of the here and the now and so we come to see that actually reality is both local <coughs> and universal that the universe is here and, and everything in the universe is here and now this is what the Buddha's teaching teaches us so anyway uh, I don't want to talk too much about Visakha because I am supposed to be getting into the next Dhammapada verse. So I just want us to have an appreciation of this day and to see it as something a little more than just um, one day in May or, or just another day in our life. It's, a, it's an, an excuse for us to broaden our perspective on things and look at things. Look at our life. Look at rea uh, uh, look at time in terms of the two thousand six hundred years since the Buddha's enlightenment, which we celebrate on this day as well. To see our life uh, as just a fleeting moment in the passage of time, and to to take advantage of this. We've already missed 2,600 years. And so here we are, here we have the time. Let's take advantage. And even today we had many people coming out to meditate, so it's very encouraging to see uh, people who realize this and take the time to come to celebrate the Buddha's birthday in a very real way, a very appropriate way. Okay, so anyway, today we get on to verse, I think it's verse number 48, I'm not sure, forgot to look up the number. Anyway, the verse goes, yatha bhammaro pupang vanaganda mahetanyam paleti rasamadaya evangami munichare which means just as a bee to a flower guards the no not guards leaves leaves the vanaganda leaves the color and the scent of the flower alone untouched unharmed paleti rasamadaya evang muni evangami munichare uh, guarding these, he takes only the essence. The bee takes only the essence of the flower. So goes the muni, the wise one, through the village. So it's a very specific, fairly specific teaching, not exactly um, on the surface applicable to our meditation practice. It's referring to how a a, an ascetic in India would have gone through the village in search of alms. And it's, it's quite interesting to, to, uh, to, to discuss and to explain, but it, it's not applicable to anyone in this room but me, I don't think. Um, but still interesting, and the story is even more interesting, and I think there's a lot that we can get out of it. But first, the meaning of the verse is, is how one who is wise... Uh, an ascetic who is wise and who is enlightened doesn't um, harm the people who support him or her. Uh, when they go in the village, they go like a bee who doesn't harm the flower. And actually, uh, the, uh, just as the bee helps the flower, there's the, the sense that the presence of the ascetic or the monk 
the wise one, in the sense of they're offering teachings and offering an example and, and offering a view of the higher life is somehow beneficial to the to the villagers. Now I like this um, this verse particularly because it's inter it, it kind of describes an interesting philosophy of this uh, minimal positive impact philosophy, like how uh, Mother Teresa and you know I, I assume she was a I think she was a good person. I'm not quite sure. Don't know much about her, but the idea, <coughs> but, but her saying was, you can't do great things in this world. You can only do small things with great love. Um, which is kind of the idea behind this verse, that uh, our impact in the world should not, we should not try to make our impact great, we should, this is this, think locally, act, uh, think globally, act locally. So do your own thing, do things, um, uh, do very simple things. Don't try to be great, don't try to be um, big, just do your thing and uh, do it with love or, or in our case do it with wisdom. So even the ascetic, the, the, the monk, you know, the wise one going through the village uh, is able to change the village just as the bee. There's just this interesting concept that you see in the animal kingdom of how, how helpful the, the bees are to the flowers and to the whole ecosystem just by doing their thing. So you can see a fairly, fairly specific verse. It's, an, it's, an, it's interesting. But the question is how does this apply to us? I think when we go through the story, we'll have a little bit more to talk about in that, in that regard. Um, but first, another warning, one of these uh, health warnings. The fluff warning, I think, is more appropriate. The Dhammapada stories are probably the worst uh, in this regard, and so I'm having to apologize many times or, or give disclaimers in advance. Um, it's not that I don't believe these things. I don't know what to think of them. And, and uh, I certainly think many, many of the things that occur in these stories are possible. Uh, now I'm skeptical as to whether they all uh, occurred as they're said to have occurred, especially because the same stories appear elsewhere with less of the embellishment. So what I'm saying is there's stuff in this story as with other stories that, that uh, seems hard to believe. You know, a lot of magic in this story. And uh, my guess, or I, I'd be willing to be branded a heretic by saying it may not have happened exactly as it uh, is said to have happened. Probably was a lot less embellished, and I think there are some famous monks who would back me up on that. So I'm not so afraid to say it. But still, as with all the stories, I'll say again that it's not the magic that makes the story, it's the moral. If you think of Aesop's fables, well, Aesop's fables are not um, useful because they teach you that, that animals can talk and, and, and so on. So in that sense, you might have, I'm not trying to say these stories are allegorical. I'm just saying that the, the, the funny stuff isn't the important stuff. The important, important is the moral and the sense behind the story, which seems very much in line with the Buddhist teaching. Okay, so there's the disclaimer. And, and that's important because otherwise there's many people who will get give rise to this um, agati, which is this, this uh, judgment. They will, they will prejudice, and it will, that, that gets in the way of your appreciating the good things. Remember, we're not so concerned about um, being right or being exact or being precise. We're, we're in, in terms of concepts. You know, did this happen? Did that happen? I don't believe this. I don't believe that. This is true. We're trying to look, we're trying to be precise in terms of experience, in terms of reality. So if you're sitting here hating everything I say and saying this is useless, this guy is not teaching me anything, it's all just a bunch of uh, meaningless garbage, then the problem isn't what I'm saying. The problem is your attitude towards it. The problem is those very states of, of anger. So if I am speaking, spouting garbage the whole time, which is useful, you know, when, you're, when your parents are scolding you and stuff. Um, there's another thing. Okay. Um, then that, that, that doesn't change your 
it, it doesn't change the appropriate response, which is to be mindful, to be, <coughs> to be, uh, to be wise, to, to, to be present. So even while I'm giving this talk, the most important thing is not what I'm saying. The most important thing is what is what's going on in in your mind, what's going on in your experience. How are you receiving it? How are you receiving sitting here, surrounded by people, with the pain in the legs and the back, and and with the thoughts and with the chaos going on in the mind, uh, chaos in the mind, and so on. How are you dealing with that? That's what's most important. So, so, but to cut that off, to, to head that off and give this disclaimer to help you see what's most important. It's so important whether any of this stuff really happened. It's an interesting and a funny story. And I think, uh, anyway, story goes, there was a man in, where was he? Maybe he was in Varanasi, I can't remember. Maybe someone can tell me. He was four, and he was 45 yojana away from Savati, which maybe puts him in Varanasi, I'm not sure. His name was Macharya Kosya Sethi. Anybody know this story? It's very famous. <coughs> the scholars in the room know this story. And many of you have heard it before. Macharya Kosya, that was his name. Macharya means uh, niggardly or stingy. What does Kosya mean? That's where he was. What's his name? Kosya. And he was so stingy. He had what? 80 koti of wealth. He was like the richest, richest guy in. I'm, I'm going to go on a limb and say it was in Varanasi. Was he in Varanasi? Do you remember? Let's say he was in Varanasi. And uh, he was the richest man. He, he, would, he, was, he was in cahoots with the king. He was probably, you know, how kings and rich people go to go well together. But he didn't even spend, they say, he didn't even spend the tip of a, a, a drop of oil on the tip of a, a blade of grass, something like that, on himself or on other people. And so he dwelt like someone who was, he dwelt like a, a beggar. He was so, so stingy. He was one of these people who didn't even indulge on himself and he was so afraid of losing his wealth that he didn't spend any of it on anything. He just hoarded it up and lived like, uh, Lived as though he had lived as though he had nothing. Now one day he was. Uh, now the Buddha, the Buddha saw him. I think the, get the order of the events right. But but anyway, th that morning the Buddha saw him in his uh, eye of wisdom in this uh, net, the, the 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 Buddha net, the Buddha. He, See, every morning the Buddha would send his mind out through the universe. And you see this in the Dhammapada, they talk about it quite often. <coughs> they would send his mind out throughout the whole universe and then back to Jetalana and look through Jetalana and then back out through the whole universe and looking for someone to, looking for who would be able to receive his teaching on that day. Who would it be appropriate to teach on that day? And so on this day, his... On, on a certain day, his mind focused on this, focused on this uh, rich man, and said, "Well, this is someone who I think could very much use my teaching, and will actually benefit quite, quite well from it." Now, on that day, right, so anyway, on that day, this man he went to see, he went to, he had gone to see the king, and on his way back. From seeing the king, he saw some worker eating a pancake, and for some reason he got a real strong craving for pancakes. I guess it, it was kind of a delicacy, and pancakes were kind of a delicacy in India. And so he gave rise to the rise to this strong craving for for a pancake. He wanted to have a pancake, and he went over. <coughs> 
And he sat down and he thought, but if I have a pancake, if I tell anyone, hey, I want a pancake, then everybody will know we're making pancakes and everybody will come over and I'll have to give pancakes to everybody. And it'll, have, it'll be a big thing, you know, how this goes. When you can't just make one pancake for yourself, but then everybody wants one. And suddenly you're giving pancakes out to the whole village and so on. I mean, this was his fear. He had this great fear and he thought, well, that's going to be very expensive to have to feed everyone. Because they don't want to do that. <coughs> it's the one thing about being rich you know that you do always have people asking you for money people always think how great it would be to rich and not be, how great it would be to be rich and all the wonderful things you can do with it but the more money you have the more responsibility you have and you do find this that you have people always Well, you you you, find, you you become surrounded by people who are, or so there's always people appealing to you for money, you know, appealing for to you for this to that, or mooching off you or so on. And so this 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 rich man he knew this very very well and overly well. I mean, it's not to say that you should be uh, stingy, but uh, he reacted very badly to this, and uh, as a result, was able to keep his money, but but dwelt in such suffering, such poverty, as we'll see, that he, 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 he said to himself, I can't tell anybody that I want a pancake. What am I going to do? And so he just repressed this desire, and as a result of repressing it, and he couldn't stop himself from thinking about it, he just kept thinking, I want a pancake. I want a pancake. Oh, I wish I could have some pancake. <coughs> And uh, he got very sick as a result. And this happens, of course, with desires. Yeah. And they affect both the body and the mind. You know, the ones, this one story about the bodhisattva who was an ascetic, and he was an ascetic with magic powers. And he thought he was pretty, pretty hot. He was able to fly through the air. And he lived up in the Himalaya mountains, but every, every year he would have to come down to get... Uh, salt, I think it says, from the and, and get necessities from the from the town, from the city. And so one day, one time, he came to the city, and the king saw him, and and the king wanted to take care of him. So the king spent this uh, spent the three months of the rains, or I can't remember, spent spent some time looking after this ascetic, and then looking after the bodhisattva, and then he had to go off and, and kill some people and fight a, a war and do the kingly things. And he left his queen in charge. He left the bodhisattva under the, the charge of the queen and said, well, you take care of him, make sure he gets food, and so on. And the queen was fine with that. And, and so every day the, the bodhisattva would come and get food from the queen. And then one day, the queen had just had a shower or something, and she was lying in her room and you know, her robe was kind of uh, loose and the bodhisattva, his superman kind of thing, he flew in through the window <coughs> and, and landed there. And when he touched the, the floor or cleared his throat or something, the queen startled, she got up and her robe came, came apart and she was there naked and of course she was a very beautiful woman and uh, he lost his tapa, as they say. He lost his uh, his jhana, I think, dissipated. His tranquility was gone, and his mind was seized, like they say, by a snake. There's a snake in the grass, and when you don't see the snake, the grass looks very calm, and then when you go walking through it, and then the snake senses you, the snake comes up and bites you. So it was like being bitten by a poisonous snake. And the queen was adjusting her robe and then she gave him the food and he's just standing there like uh, fighting with this lust that had arisen. And he, he, he tries to give her a blessing and kind of fails at that. And so he turns around and tries to fly out through the, the window and he can no longer do it. And... Uh, so he walks out through the door embarrassed and then he goes back to his hut where he's living and he can't eat and he can't sleep and he, he ends up getting very, very sick as a result and eventually the king comes back, the king finds out 
and he talks to the queen and says, what are we going to do? And so she says, so I'll, I'll, I'll fix this guy. And so she says to the king to, to give, give her as a present to him. So he, the king goes to the ascetic and says, look, I, I understand your problem. You can have my wife. She's yours. And so he gets all excited and, and he takes the queen off and they go and they, they, the king gives them a house and they go and they go to the house. And then the queen starts her plan and she says to him, okay, now can you go back to the palace and get me my pillow or something? And so he goes back and gets the pillow. And, oh, and get me this from the palace. Can you get me my mirror? And he goes back and gets the mirror. Can you get me my jewelry? And he goes back and gets the jewelry and back and forth about 10 times. Until finally she grabs him by his beard, because he's, he's a bearded ascetic. Gives him a couple of slaps and says, look, don't you realize how, how, how ridiculous you're being or something like that? Gets him back on track. Which is an interesting, it's actually the exact same ploy that works here in the case of, of our stingy rich man. The, the only way to overcome craving is not to deny yourself. Obviously, this doesn't work. It's to become bored of it, to come to, 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 to overcome the craving in terms of seeing that it's useless, seeing how much suffering it's bringing to you, becoming, uh, working, it, working it out. So in this case, this queen worked it out and showed him how ridiculous he was being and gave him the opportunity to become... disenchanted, I think is the word, dispassionate about it, to, to give up his passion by seeing the negative side of it. Now this is what happens with our friend, the, the rich man. He starts to get very sick and this is the beginning of his understanding of how, how his, his stinginess and his greed is hurting him. The, this, this realization of how sick, it is, how sick it is to be, how sick it is to cling to things. And his, so his wife comes up and she starts, she strokes his back and says, what's wrong? Are you sick? And he says, no, I'm not sick. Says, well, what, is the king angry at you? No, the king's not angry. It's your son, and the, some, something your son or daughter or your servants or your friends is some, something they did to you? No, none of that. Is there something you want? And just lie there silently. Tell me, tell me, what do you want? No, I can't tell you. Come on. And then it says, just as though he was swallowing the words, he says to her, I want a pancake. What? <coughs> I want a pancake. Wow, what are you doing fussing about that? What's a simple pancake? I'll make enough pancakes for the whole for the whole kingdom. We got no problem with that. I'll make enough pancakes for everyone. We'll open the doors and, and his eyes go wide and he says, What is crazy? What have they done for us? What have any of those people done for us? He says, What are they to you? Can't they work for their own food? And I'm you, raging and you seem to think that my wealth is nothing and so on. Well, you know, way to guard my wealth, you know, this kind of thing. It just goes crazy on her. He says, okay, okay, well, we'll, for, we'll, you know, for the, we'll just make enough for our, for our street. No, he says, uh, what are those people to us? He says, okay, well, well, fine, just make it for that. We'll just, our own house, we'll have some pancakes. And he says, what are those people, what are, what are our family members to us? What have they done for us? What are they going to do for us? He says, okay, well, enough for you and me. And who are you? <laughs> he's that what he's that stingy. He really, his own wife, he says to her face, What are you to me? What have you done for me or something? What will you do? Says, okay, I'll make you a pancake if you like. And he says, It's not gonna work. If I if you make me a pancake, everyone will everyone will know. Here, here's what we'll do. He says, we'll go up to the seventh store, seventh floor of our mansion bring some broken rice and uh, oil and, and, and whatever, ghee or whatever they did. Uh, and, and all the pots and so on and, and, and make 
and firewood and so on and arrange it all up at the seventh floor on the seventh story and we'll lock all the doors and just you and me and you'll make me a pancake and no one will know about it. So she does that and he's waiting and uh, she goes up to and she, she arranges it all and, and he's in secret and she sends away all the slaves, all the servants and tells them to go tell him that she's he's ready. Goes and locks all the doors of the, the mansion or the door in the door at the bottom of the stairs. He goes up the stairs to the seventh story, locks the door and sits against the door and waits. And there she starts lighting a fire and making the, making the pancakes. Now we zoom over to Jetavana where the Buddha is staying. And the Buddha, it's the early morning and the Buddha has someone call Mogalana Superman. Mogalana is our Superman. Mogalana is the Buddha's chief disciple on the left side. The Buddha had a right-hand man and a left-hand man. And the right-hand man was Sariputta, who was uh, ultimate, supreme in knowledge. Besides the Buddha, there was no one with as much wisdom as Sariputta. And Mogalana was supreme in terms of magical powers. So he had great mental strength, mental fortitude. Uh, so apart from the Buddha, no one had such great mental strength and ability as Mogalana. Or maybe Sariputta, I'm not sure, but I think Mughalana was, yeah, he was special in that. Etadaga, he was the highest in terms of mental fortitude, magical powers. So he calls Mughalana because he says, well, this is a job. Wisdom isn't going to work here. We got we to gotta scare this guy. So he says to Mughalana, Mughalana comes and he says, Mughalana, Mughalana is one of the monks, no, he's just a guy. Um, he says, Mogalana, today we're going to eat pancakes. <laughs> Me, you, and the 500 monks in Jetavana, 500 of the monks in Jetavana, we're going to stay here today. And we're going to sit here <coughs> and eat pancakes. And what the Buddha says always comes to pass. This is the... the majesty of the Buddha. And there's no there's no question in Mughalana's mind that this is going to happen. He's like, okay. Most of us would be like, dude, where are we going to get pancakes? <laughs> <laughs> but not, not Mughalana and not the Buddha, certainly. And so he told them that 45 leagues away there is a stingy, rich man trying to make a pancake. <laughs> And that's all he has to say. Well, I think he says, bring, you, bring him here or something like that. But, but really, he doesn't have to, because Mogolan is very clear. He understands exactly what, what's happening and what to do. He says, go to. Mogolan looks up in the sky. Up, up, and away, like a bird. It's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's Mogolan. And he flies the 45 Yojana, which is about 45 leagues, so 45 times 16 miles, I think, something like that, which is a lot of miles. Uh, 400 something, no? 700, 700 miles. That's a far ways away. I wonder where he was. Anyway, and again, the, the distances are also often exaggerated. As with the number of monks, there may not have been 500. 500 just generally means a lot. But okay, for the story, let's say, let's say there's 500 monks, because you're like, this guy doesn't have enough pancakes for 500 monks, even if he did make more than, he's just making one pancake, right? Okay. Mogulana goes to, and he, he comes outside of his, this rich man's palace or mansion, flies up to the seventh floor and stands outside the window. Just stands on the air. And the rich man looks out the window. <coughs> And he sees Mogalana standing there, and his heart stops, or his heart starts, starts shaking. As you imagine, this guy is so, it's not a from fear, it's like, he doesn't even think, he doesn't even seem to be phased by the fact that there's a guy floating <coughs> outside his window. He's just like, there's someone who will take my pancake away from me. He's got a bowl, right? This guy wants my pancake. And he starts freaking out. And he gets this anger, 
And he doesn't even realize how angry, but he becomes very, very angry. And he starts stuttering, ta 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 ta. There's this, this Pali phrase, ta 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 ta. Ta 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 is something, ta 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 karna, I can't remember. He becomes like he's just like, da, 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 like stuttering. That's what they mean. Sputtering, sputtering is the word. He starts to sputter and he says, Oh, I know what you think. You think you're going to get a pancake? Well, even if you were to walk back and forth in the air, you wouldn't get one of these pancakes. So Mogalana starts walking back and forth in the air. Even if you sit down in the air, you won't get one of these pancakes. Walking back and forth isn't going to do you anything. Even if you sat down in the air, you won't get one of these pancakes. So he sits down, crosses his legs, puts his legs in the lotus position, just on the air. Sitting in the air isn't going to do you anything. Even if you were to stand on the window ledge, you wouldn't get one of these pancakes. You wouldn't get a pancake. So he comes in and stands on the window ledge. <coughs> Even if you come in and, and, and stand on the... No, even if you were to... Right. Even if you were to start smoking, even if you were to start smoking up, I wouldn't give you... You burst into smoke, I wouldn't give you one of these pancakes. So Moglana starts emitting smoke. His whole body starts smoking. And the whole palace, the whole mansion fills up with, with smoke. And yeah, his eyes are stinging and he's coughing and... And then he thinks, because the, the next thing he's going to say is, uh, even if you were to light, to burst into flames, but then he's like, oh, wait, <coughs> this mansion's made of wood. He says, I can't build it. He's like, uh, uh, he says, he starts to get afraid for the mansion. And, for the, and so he says, I better give him this guy. This guy's really stuck on this. He's greedy. He's got this greedy, greedy recluse who doesn't take no for an answer. Better give him one of the pancakes, and so he says to the, he says to his wife, "All right, make the ascetic little, take a little bit of dough and and make him a little little pancake." Mm -hmm. And so she takes takes a little bit, takes a spoon and just makes a little one and fills the whole pan up, and makes the biggest pancake, huge pancake. And he looks and he says, no, no, don't give, don't give him that one. Don't give him that one. Put that aside. Make a, make a small one. Here, I'll do it. He takes the spoon and just a little bit and pours it. And it's even bigger than the last one. <laughs> and he tries again and tries again. And, he, and then you know, he's stacking those. He says, no, don't give him those. Don't give him those. And then he just loses it. Mm -hmm. And, and, and he's, he finally gives up his... No, he says, okay, well, fine. Give him one of, give him one of those pancakes. <coughs> he's got a stack of pancakes now. Give him one. Give one to the reckless. It's fine. We can. We can. We'll make it up next month. No. The price of the pancake. And so she tries, and she says they're stuck together. The pancakes are all stuck together. What can we do? And he says, Oh, you're useless. Give it to me. And he starts to try to pry them apart, and he can't pull the pancakes apart. They won't come apart somehow. They're all stuck together. And the commentary says. Even if they had 80 million, 80 koti of people or something like, even if they each brought 80 koti of people, no, I can't, I don't, I, I don't, the translation's not clear, but something like that, they wouldn't be able to break it apart. There's no way they could have gotten those pancakes apart. And you can see how this building up, what's, what's going on here is it's building up in the, in the rich man's mind. He's just getting more and more more and more stressed about this until finally he does give it up and this is uh, this is how it relates back to that other story I told from the Jataka of this Bodhisattva who gets told by the queen gets smacked around by this queen uh, the stress and, and having the stress build and seeing the stress of, of, of the craving because as he was going back for the queen's things he would have been having this craving this desire and oh I get to go and no 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 with my queen but with this, this woman uh, and and he's you know back and forth back and forth dealing with this this desire until finally she smacks him and and he realizes not just from this back but also realizes yes what a fool he's been and how much suffering there is in this desire so this this rich man is going through this even on a far worse level all he wants is a pancake right and it's getting more and more complicated more and more difficult more and more suffering. 
and so this is this is just too much for him and he gives up and he loses he actually loses his appetite I don't know how people say when they lose their appetite because of something that happened they just become disgusted by it and this is very much very similar to what happens in meditation for the meditation this happens with just about everything you, you have to deal with your desires your cravings until you see that really the craving is causing you stress is causing you suffering because you can't act on it and so you become <coughs> disgusted by it or the word isn't disgusted you become bored of it i think tired of it maybe it's a good way it's kind of like feeling tired and and, and fed up with the, the the craving and the attachment and so you give it up so this is what was happening to him and finally he just gave up and he says give him them all give him all the pancakes mm -hmm. he says come, come in sit down we'll give you all these pancakes you can have them so he puts them puts them in the bowl and really kind of fed up and he just sits down and he's like, totally defeated and uh, Moggallana gives him a a blessing but his blessing of course in 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 the buddhist time the blessing would be a, a teaching so he started to talk to him about there is what is given there is what is sacrificed <coughs> starting from starting from from the idea of giving which is somewhat important you know giving is the beginning of giving up uh, if if we are like this rich man if we're worried about our wealth concerned about our belongings concerned about anything that can be your possessions money people uh, it can be even your own physical well-being as long as you're concerned with these things worried about your health worried about your um, physique worried about your your worried about anything as long as you're clinging to anything not just money not just possessions but all things you're going to have this um, you're going to have this difficulty. And so, um, you're, you're never going to progress, let's say, you're never going to become free from suffering. You're always going to have something that will set you off you have this your, your experience is based on partiality and your reactions to things are, are partial when you meet with something pleasant you enjoy it when you meet with something unpleasant you can't help but feel disappointment um, even though you'd want to be happy right? we all want to be happy even sitting here in this room we want to be happy that we're here and yet we find our minds going back and forth from happiness to suffering based on our partiality, our, our, our inability to center ourselves and to just be here and now and be objective. So meditation is very much about being objective, which allows you to, to, to let go, allows you to experience all things equally. So the, the practice of giving is a way of approaching this sort of objectivity, of, of taking the things that you're incredibly partial to and giving them up. And also means taking the partial things things you're partial against and accepting them, allowing them to come, allowing the experience to, to happen. So this is a it's a good way to enter into the Buddhist teaching through charity. Charity is not, of course, a principal virtue uh, in the commentaries or well no, but it certainly is in the Buddhist teaching and, and especially for people who maybe even don't think about meditation. Charity is a good way to begin this shift from wanting, getting, needing to letting go and giving up. Right? The first step to giving is the first step to giving up, which is important. So he, he started talking about charity and he would have given some talk along this lines, of course, uh, as a chief disciple of the Buddha, it would have been profound and, and incredible and given great faith to his listeners. And as a result, the, both of them became quite... Uh, quite uh, appreciative and, and, and happy and acquired great faith in, in this month. And they said to him, okay, they said to him, wow, that's, that's really profound, this idea of giving up, letting go, and 
how our suffering doesn't come from what we don't get, it comes from wanting. Not getting what we want, the problem is the wanting, not the, get, not, the not getting. I'm starting to realize this because, you know, I really had great suffering, not because I didn't get what I want, but because I was wanting. And she said, please, thank you for that teaching, please, please eat your pancakes. So what do you think? You think he's going to sit there and eat his pancakes? Why not? What's left to do? Hmm? Yes, we have to fulfill the Buddha's wish. No, not the, not the Buddha's wish, the Buddha's prophecy. What did the Buddha say? He said, we're going to sit here in Jaitavana, 45 leagues away, and we're going to eat pancake. All 500 monks. So Moggallana says, right at this moment, he says to the rich man, right at this moment, there is a fully enlightened Buddha sitting in, uh, sitting in his kuti, waiting to eat pancakes. <laughs> and he says, where? Where is the Buddha? He's, uh, no, and with your permission, if you're okay with it, I'd like to bring you both there to serve him pancakes, where he is to serve him pancakes. And he says, okay, where is he? He's 45 leagues away in solitude, which is what? 45 times 16 is lots and lots of miles. And he says, I don't think we'll get there before lunch. And Moglana says, well, if you're okay, I'll take you there by magical, by means of my magical power. And he says, okay. And I guess it was a big deal back then to have people teleport to places. Uh, kind of like Star Trek. And so what he did, what Moglana did was interesting. I, I thought he would like lift them in the air, right? What do you think he did? What would he have done? How would he have gotten these people 45 leagues? He could have lifted them up in the air, that's what I would have thought. But no. What he did is he opened a wormhole and he put one end uh, at the gate of Jaitavana near Savati. There's still a gate there, even today they made a new gate. And he put the other end at the bottom of the staircase on the seventh story of this the bottom story of this guy's mansion. So that when he opened the door at the bottom of the staircase, there was <coughs> the gate of Jeddah. Cool, huh? If I could do that, I wouldn't have to fly to Toronto. <laughs> Hi, Dad. So they walked down and they walked out, and suddenly they're at the gate of Jeddah, looking around. And walk in and there's the Buddha and they walk up to the Buddha and then Moglana takes them and says this, this is the Buddha, this is a fully enlightened Buddha, this is a rich man and his wife and they offer pancakes to the Buddha and the Buddha takes the pancakes or, or they, they offer some to the Buddha and then they go on and they start offering to the other monks and then they realize how many monks there are, and they're like, okay, and uh, oh, well, we'll give as many as we have. And somehow they find they're not running out of pancakes. And so they're giving pancakes, and they end up giving pancakes. So all 500 monks, and then some of the monks want more pancakes, and so they go and give more pancakes to those monks. And they the greedy monks. No, I don't think so. I mean, they would ask, you know, Is there, would you like any more? And they're still hungry, so they get another pancake, and they're still not running out. And finally, all the monks had eaten their fill and had, had enough food for the day. And there's still pancakes left. There's a, there's a huge mass of pancakes left. And so they go to the Buddha and they say, well, what are we going to do with these leftover pancakes? They're just not running out. And the Buddha says, well, go and dump them down the, the, into the, the hill. There's this hill or something. It's not clear what it is. I think it's some kind of sloped incline. Throw it over that, that hill or else it's a hill or something. I don't know. Probably it's going down, make, make it landfill kind of thing. And so he did that, and to this day, or to the time of the commentary, to the time of the commentary, it was still called the Pancake Hill. That was the name of that hill. Anyway, that's the story. Then Moggallana brought them back to their, their palace, uh, their mansion, and then the monks were thinking about it, and they were so amazed at how Moggallana was able to 
do that how, how just by going for alms, right? Kind of a special alms. Just by walking and looking for breakfast, how he was able, just by looking for breakfast, he was able to bring this rich man over to. Uh, and sorry, I missed the most important part, of course, is that then the Buddha, after the meal, the Buddha gave the talk, this talk to, gave a talk to the rich man, to the rich man, rich woman, and they both became sotapanas. They both had a realization of nibbana as they were sitting listening. So, meaning they would have sat listening, not thinking about the teachings, but actually practicing them. And as a result, they were able to let go and become free and enter into cessation and realize the truth. Uh, and to see that it's possible to, to to be free from suffering, and so as a result, they were called sotapanna, which means one who has entered the stream to enlightenment. Right, uh, and then Moggallana brought them back, and then the monks were <coughs> so amazed at this, and look at look at how Moggallana was able to do this. And the Buddha came and said, "That's just the way of uh, the sage, the Muni." And then he gave this verse and he said, Yata Bamaru Pupang, Managanda Mahita Yam, Vanejira Samadaya, So this is how, just as a bee goes, because if you look at the story, you think it's kind of greedy, no? Like, is that all you're going to do with, with your enlightenment, is to sit around and say, hmm, this guy's making pancakes, I'd like some of those. Yeah? So I'll just sit here and when Duxit is making. Uh, I don't dare say any food because I know that if I do them tomorrow, someone's going to bring it to me because I think, oh, he must like that. So I don't dare even give an example. Daxit is making kiribat. <laughs> I know, oh, Daxit's making kiribat. Wow, I really like some kiribat. And then call my assistant. To go and get me some. It seems like I'm doing it for a fairly greedy reason. And so this is a, a charge that's leveled against monks. Uh, we go walking through the village, kind of expecting people to give us food. And so it's a challenge, and this is a response to that challenge. That the you know a deed by its fruit. If something is hurting hurting people, then is, is something is causing suffering, then it's, uh, it's wrong. So when people call monks beggars, they actually don't beg. A monk is not allowed to beg, they're not allowed to ask. But they're allowed to go and see if someone wants to give. And why is that? Because giving is an important practice. It's the beginning of giving up, which is the, the essence of Buddhist practice. So this is what the bee does to the flower. This is also what the monk does in the, the sage does in the village. They don't go looking for kiribat. They just go into the village and take what they want. Take what is given to them. Rasamadai gatsati. They go away. They they go away with the essence, the pollen of the flower, and that doesn't hurt the flower at all. So when the monk goes to the village, they look and if people have leftover food or people have made food especially as a gift, uh, as a, an alms distribution, which was common in India. They don't go looking for sports cars or uh, widescreen television or so. And they only take what is of, of necessity and nothing more. And the Buddha said, this is, Mughalana has always been this way, and he told one of the Jatakas. And so in the Jataka, the same thing happened, and I think it was the same guy in a past life, Mughalana once. Which is an in, another interesting point, because the Buddha must have seen this, and so he would have seen that, that these two had a relationship. He saw this, this rich man, and he thought, wow, you know, Mughalana's done this once before, let's get Mughalana to do this again now reenact what's what they've done in the past life. So apparently the exact same thing happened in a past life without the Buddha getting involved. And Moggallana wanted to show him I think it was Moggallana just wanted to show him in a past life. And so they said, well let's let's get them to do this again, only bring Dhamma into it. So bring him to see the truth. And that's how the story goes. So what is the lesson that we can take? Well I think there's that key lesson here and it's 
this is a very good example for that reason. If you look at the story uh, on the surface, it seems like pretty useless, pretty meaningless, but if you go deeply into this aspect of craving, it actually is quite key and, and an example of the essence of what happens uh, during meditation, which is that we give up our craving. We, we come to see the stress involved with craving by having to see it again and again, look at it again and again, which is really the only um, sustainable release from craving that, that exists and that's and, and you can see this in life when people become fed up with something and just have enough. I was reading this book written by a neuroscientist who used to be a drug addict, very good book. And it's a Canadian um, from Ontario. He, he was a drug addict and he was a thief. He was, he was breaking into people's houses to steal drugs and breaking into doctor's offices to steal drugs. And then one day he just realized, you know, or not realized, but he just had enough. He just nothing was working, no treatment was working, there was nothing that could get him off these hard drugs, heroin and, and so on. And finally he just saw that this is endless, this is never going to end. And, and if you read the story, how he, he describes it, it's very much the realization of how pointless it is, not how bad it is. Of course, hating yourself for, these, for your addictions doesn't overcome them, but realizing how pointless it was how it was just repeating itself over and over again. And so just one day out of the blue, this came to him and he stopped. It wasn't that he wasn't addicted anymore. It's that he um, didn't want, you know, wasn't, um, wasn't afraid of the addiction or wasn't attached to the addiction, I guess is, is the best way of putting it. And so every time the addiction came up, he just said, no, he said, you know, no, I really don't see the point anymore. I really don't want it anymore. So, so you can see how this carries out in real life, and it's it's an incredible freedom to know that you don't have to hate yourself because of either your addictions or your aversions, because of any of your mental states. You just have to understand them. And this is how meditation works. You don't hate yourself. You don't chastise yourself. You don't repress any of the... Um, states in the mind or any of the qualities of mind, even the bad qualities of mind. Just see them for what they are. Just understand them, study them. And this is why we have meditation. This is why we sit down to yeah, focus on something, on, on mundane reality. We're not sitting down, closing our eyes to try to drift away and, and uh, see heaven, see hell, remember our past lives or so on. This isn't the point. The point is to see ourselves. To see the truth about what's going on in our mundane reality. So, and so as a result, we, we, get, the, we, get, we get this much quicker, much clearer, and much more, more detailed than, than, than these examples that I'm giving <coughs> in ordinary life. We, we start to see this about everything. You start to see it about every aspect of your life, all of your likes and dislikes. Uh, simple dislikes like dislike of the pain in the legs or the pain in your head or the pain in the back. Um, simple desires like desire for food or the, or the desire for um, excitement, for entertainment and so on. This is really the essence of meditation, allowing us to become objective, to, to live here and now, to live unattached or independent of any clinging. And so, so it's a model for our practice, this kind of process that, that we, can go, we can go about on a moment-to-moment -moment level. We can approach everything in this way, look and see look at our obsessions and see how we're obsessing about them and begin to change our reaction so that we simply see things as they are. So we have this tool of reminding ourselves when you see something, instead of letting yourself get excited about it, you just remind yourself that seeing. The Buddha was very clear about this, seeing. The most important thing, the essence of the practice, is that seeing should just be seen. So we remind ourselves that's just seeing.
when you hear something, you remind yourself that's hearing. Even when you like something, you remind yourself that's liking. When you dislike something, dislike. When you're afraid of something, afraid. When you're walking, walking. When you're sitting, sitting. When you're bored, bored. When you're excited, excited. Just seeing things as they are allows this process of uh, boredom to occur, of disenchantment to occur, where the things that excite you begin to, to bore you. You begin to see that happiness doesn't come from clinging. See what we really already know, because if happiness came from clinging, then we would we would all have been happy by now, right? We spent so much time chasing after the objects of our desire, and we're no closer to being satisfied. You don't see any discernible change except more wanting, right? So if you look at the levels here, we had these little meters where we could we could assess the level of certain things, right? So we got a little bit of wanting come. Well, something arises, so you you get something. And so there's a little bit of pleasure comes up, okay. Or maybe even a lot of pleasure. Let's say the first time it's kind of exciting, so there's a lot of pleasure. Right? And so as a result of all that pleasure, some wanting arises. Just a little bit of wanting because you've never had it before. But the next time you see it, you've got this wanting there. You're like, oh, cool, so you get it. Your wanting increases, and the pleasure is actually less when you get it. But, but the wanting, because it's habitual, uh, it, it increases. And you can watch the brain, and you can actually assess these levels. The wanting increases each time, and the pleasure, the amount of pleasure you get decreases. Um, and this has to do with, well, it's, you, can, you can view it from a phys on a physical level in terms of these, the cycle of addiction as they study it in the brain. This, uh, this book I was mentioning, because this guy, this guy eventually gave up his addiction, eventually he became a neuroscientist, and so he's describing his own life from the point of view of neuroscience. So you have dopamine makes you want, makes you, this chemical makes you want to get it, and when you get it, something else is released, and that releases more dopamine, uh, except then, you know, there's fewer receptors or something, and so less pleasure next time, or whatever. Interesting stuff. Um, well, so, so, we, we know, that, you know, this is, this is something that is not difficult to see. Um, what is I think maybe difficult to see is how it's how it's um, is how it, it's it's addictive the nature of addiction we're not able to see that our wanting is increasing because the, this is the nature of wanting wanting is a like a focusing on that on the object not focusing on the wanting and so you might even go further and say that's the problem the problem in all cases in in our lives is why we fall into suffering is we focus much more on the object than we do on the subject. Um, instead of focusing on our wanting, we're focusing on what it is that we want. So, so we never actually see the nature of the wanting. We never actually see that it's building and building and building and increasing. We don't see the, the problem. We just see the, the result. And this is, this is how dopamine works, apparently. There's very much this excitement that arises. Anyway, the, the point being, we never look at our own state of mind. When you dislike something, when you're angry at someone, you never look at your anger, you always look at the other person, how angry they make you. You made me angry, and the focus is very much on them, never on your anger. So meditation fixes that, it, adjust, it readjusts, and it helps, uh, helps you to see yourself, helps you to see what's, what's really going on, because the other person is just a concept in your mind. It's, if someone's yelling at you, the idea that there's a person yelling at you is just a concept. The reality is just sound arising at the ear and the anger arising in the mind. This is what's really going on, what you're really experiencing. So you're not really, when you, when you, when you, when someone's yelling at you, you're not really experiencing someone yelling at you. You're just experiencing sound, you're interpreting it, and as a result of all the stories that you tell yourself in your mind, you're getting upset by it. When you like something, when you want something, you're not really attracted to that thing. You're attracted to the chemical reactions in the brain, the pleasure that arise, arises. It's still, it's, it's just another drug addiction. You can talk about all the sublime pleasures of life and so on, but in the end, it's all just chemicals in the brain. You don't really experience a sunset. You just experience um, well, light touching your eye and 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 the pictures, the the fantasy, the the, the illusions, 
the dreams that you create or the concepts that you create in your mind. Oh, a sunset. Oh, beautiful. And that gives rise to pleasure and poof, you're, you're, you're addicted. You get your drug, you get your, your happy drug. Um, and, and so again, I'm not trying to say that, that there's anything wrong with looking at the sunset or anything wrong with any of these pleasures. I'm saying that rather than chase after them again and again and again, we should, begin, we should look and see what they're doing to us and see whether it's actually satisfying you, whether it's actually making you a better, nicer, kinder, happier person. And it's, it's surprising in many cases, even in the most sublime um, <coughs> desires of life sublime pursuits. We see that they're actually not qualitatively different than a drug addiction. Unfortunately, sorry to say. But the, the, the bright side of that is um, that happiness doesn't depend on any of these things. You don't need your happiness to depend on X, Y, and Z, on, on anything in the world around you, or even inside of you. Your happiness can be independent of those things. And that's why we understand Nibbana to be special. Nibbana is not a thing it's not something that arises. It's not something that you experience. It's a cessation. It's um, this freedom or this release where your happiness is independent of everything. You, you fly like a bird independent of the tree. So that is the latest talk on the commentary of the Dhammapada, which is, uh, does lend itself to some interesting teachings and uh, always gives you a good story to tell. So thank you all for waiting patiently, for listening patiently, and for everyone for tuning in both live and to our YouTube channel. Uh, I hope this has been somehow beneficial and helped you to open your mind and at least consider, thing, consider a new way of looking at certain things in your life. And as a result, it might um, bring you closer to peace, happiness, and true freedom from suffering. Thank you all, and I wish you all to find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Thank you. Have a good day.